Well, it's Advent, and it means coming or arrival, and obviously being, um, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the angels are actually jealous of us because we live on this side of the cross and resurrection, and that the, that, um, that the prophets ached to know when what they were burning on the inside with would become a reality. In 1 Peter 1, 10, 10 through 13, but that have now been revealed through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we celebrate Advent or the coming of Christ, we do so in a sense on the balls of our feet. We celebrate and reflect on what he accomplished when he came as a baby, but also we live in between the Advents when he will come again and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and his Christ, Revelation 13. And we live in this between Advent moment, which can just flat out be a place of tension. When all of the promises of scripture, all of the promises of what God not only has done in and through Jesus, but what God will do in and through his church until the time when Jesus splits the sky, riding on the white steed, where the word is like a sword out of his mouth, that all of Satan and his minions are cast into the abyss forever just with the word. I mean, he's got an army with him, if you read Revelation 19, but to, to my knowledge, we don't really do anything. It's just the word that comes out of the one on the steed. And he overthrows darkness forever. And so Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, this vision of no more tears, no more darkness, no more sorrow. How many long and ache for those days? And so we ache for them because we know, because we have the deposit of the Holy Spirit. That is what is to come. And so our deposit of the Spirit who is the one who enables us to participate in God's family and God's kingdom, is also the spirit that longs for what is to come to become the reality here and now. And so it's this tension. Some theologians call it the now and the not yet. But what I want us to look at today is when I was studying on Monday, so the Lord just jacked up my day by giving me two words out of this famous passage of Isaiah 9, and I've had it all week to think about it and pray into it. So I hope to not have to read um, this morning. But that famous passage of Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, a son is given, right? This unbelievable prophetic promise 700 years before Jesus is born of a virgin, which the son is also the one two chapters earlier in, in Isaiah 7, 14, who is Emmanuel. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he'll be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And in chapter 9, there's this crescendo and this glorious prophetic promise that Isaiah sees because he already saw the glory and holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. And how many know that it's important to have a first-hand encounter with God so that he can keep speaking to you, but to try to discern the things of God without becoming a child of God first is a little bit like trying to read a language you don't know. Are you tracking with me? But no one knows the thoughts of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16, except for the Spirit of God. 
And so Isaiah has an encounter with the holy, holy, holy God. He realizes in the presence of that kind of holiness, he's filthy, he's ruined, and he's a man of unclean lips among a generation of unclean lips. And the Lord takes the fire, cleanses his lips, and then he gives him his sort of priestly prophetic calling. And the revelation increases. If you read throughout the book of Isaiah, it just gets more and more glorious. The spirit is able. I'm telling you, God wants to do something in the heart of every one of his sons and daughters that you can have a relationship that doesn't grow crusty or stale, but it just increases. It increases. It increases. It increases. It increases. That The more you hear the word about Christ in Romans 10, 17, the more your heart craves to know him and to live in light of what he's made available for you to live in light of. And so for Isaiah, if you read it closely, it increases throughout the book. It's glorious. And here in chapter 9, there's two words that just stunned me and two words that I believe have a very, very, very relevant message for us today. So are you ready? Those two words are establish, say establish, establish. and upheld. upheld. It goes on to say in verse 7, that of the increase of his government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. And why is David important? Because of the prophetic promise of 2 Samuel 7, that David, on your throne, I will have someone who will reign and rule, and the kingdoms uh, and the nations will bow before him, this Davidic king. That's why David's important. Are you tracking with me? Just say amen, and I'll move forward. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and how long? Forever. And so here is the word. I want to preach short today. I really am trying to become better, okay? <laughs> it's not that long preaching is wrong, but last week it was unbelievable. One of my hero preachers that I've really been loving I knew he was preaching the same text I was last week. So instead of going home and flipping on TV or, uh, or uh, football, which I ain't saying anything's wrong with that, people. Can I get an amen? I love going home around 2 o'clock and you throw the lazy boy back and eat some chips and salsa and then you fall asleep a little. Come on, am I preaching anyone's <laughs> Dr. Pepper or whatever your fancy is? But this Sunday, last Sunday, I didn't... Um, I didn't do that. I knew this guy was preaching this text, the same one I did last week, and so I listened, and he said in 30 minutes what I couldn't say in an hour and a half. Now, he's preached for 35 years, so get off my back. I haven't, <laughs> but I just was so challenged and stirred. There's nothing, sanct there's nothing holier about preaching shorter, but it's about giving people something they can chew on all week. Does that make sense? Yeah. So thank you for your, this has just been wonderful and your grace over these seven and a half months being your pastor. And I really do, um, I desire to be a man who hears from God and then with compassion and conviction releases what God is putting on my heart so that God's people can walk in the, in the abundance of his, of his um. so now that I just took seven minutes explaining that I want to preach shorter, <laughs> you see, that's what happens. So much of the word is in me because I love the word. It just, you can get on holy word tangents. Let's just make this quick. Are you all right? You all right? Say, all right, Chatty. We got this. Right, Establish and uphold. 
These words stunned me. I mean, it was, I was up early in the morning Monday, and I flipped on the fire, and I had my coffee and my Bible and my journal, and it's like these words came with so much weight. And I began to think, how did this Davidic king come to reign on his throne? In other words, how did he establish it? And I'm going to paraphrase a lot, but I promise you it's all in there. You can go read all of John 12. I wish I could read the whole thing and unpack all of it. But I'm going to paraphrase, starting around verse 15, John 12. The answer, the question is, so how, does he, how did he establish his throne? Did you know that, the, that I studied some of the dynasties throughout the ages, the Mongol dynasties, the, the Persian dynasty, um, the British Empire, one of the greatest, if not the greatest in history as far as reach and those under its reign. And, and, and did you know that every one of them has risen and has fallen? Right? I'm not a, hist- I'm not a history uh, scholar, but I know enough to know that every world superpower eventually falls I just studied it. I mean, you just read it, and you just blog it, look it, read it, study it. And I was thinking, how do, how do so many dynasties or empires establish their throne? War. War? How else? Come on, this is, this is interactive time. Force. Force? How else? Ingenuity? Politics? Greed? How else? I mean, this is just the kingdom's dominion. Coercion. How many know that um, the ground toward the throne of almost every kingdom is really, really bloody? Anyone know? Yeah. I mean, even at the expense of some of the most powerful world rulers at their own sons and daughters or people that they viewed as threats to their throne. Are you tracking with me? So it's important to know and to learn from if this Davidic throne and kingdom is the kingdom that's going to trump every other kingdom, how did he go and establish his throne? This is stunning. She gave it away, but I'm going to get there in seven minutes. <laughs> no, it's so much, it is the blood, but listen, it's breathtaking. <laughs> it's breathtaking, really. In John 12, verse 15, there's this triumphal procession where... Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And it looks normal from the outward eye. There's palm branches. There's pomp. Crowds are excited. They're shouting, Hosanna, God save, God save. Blessed is he who comes. And they're, they're quoting all of their favorite psalms, Psalm 118 and others. Hosanna. And it looks good from the outside. So far, so good. Are you tracking with me for this king? And he goes, and and they're shouting, and they're shouting. And and it says around verse 18 through 20 that the Pharisees at one point were like, I'm sorry, back up. One point, really important. Everything seems normal except for the mode of transportation for this king. (laughs) What was he riding, Samuel? Samuel. He's riding a donkey. How many know? I mean, that's not what kings ride. So as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, the place that sort of the Jews believe the temple to be that place of intersection between heaven and earth, 
this place of their great national ethnic hope. And Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 12 that the Pharisees are like, we've got to do something or the whole world will go after him. Verse 20, remember we're asking the question, we want to answer two things. How did he establish it and how does he uphold it? This kingdom that will have no end. Verse 20, Jesus and his disciples are approached by Greeks. Now, how many understand what we mean in the Bible by Jew and Gentile? Jew would be sort of the ethnic people of God whom he called through their father Abraham are you tracking with me? Sort of Israel. And Gentiles would be everyone else, non-Jewish people. Just raise your hand, because this is important. It's all over the Bible. If you never knew that, it's okay if you didn't know that. But in John 12, 20, some non-Jewish people want to see the Jewish Messiah, the king, who's riding on a donkey. And Jesus knows that this was always God's plan all along, that through his seed, Abraham's seed, Genesis 22, 18 through 19, that the nations were always in the heart of God, Amen. that his people, Exodus 19, 6 through 7, would be a kingdom of priests who would mediate the presence of God to one another and to the onlooking nations. This was the, this was the job description of Israel all along. How many just say all along, Pastor Chatty? We get it. So Jesus knew that what Israel failed to do, not only to mediate and to live in the presence for themselves, but they, instead of affecting the culture, they were, as we see through 1,100 pages of this thing, they were more influenced by outward forces than they were an influence on them. And how many know this is a script that many of us are too good at playing? For real. And so Jesus knows that, man, this was always your heart, Father, was that the nations, that the world would know you in and through your people. And I'm telling you, it's still his intention today that in and through his people, Jesus would be made known and evident. It didn't change his mind. And so here's Jesus after he's the king riding on a donkey. So this cues us a little bit. This is a little bit awkward. This is a little bit weird, right, out of the prophetic promise of Zechariah 9 about a king that will ride on this humble beast. And the, these, the, these Gentiles come to Philip, and they say, we want to see Jesus. And if you, I don't have time, if you study John's gospel, he uses the word hour five, six, seven, eight times. And it, it, it's throughout John's gospel, Jesus is operating and living his entire life out of a divine TikTok. Shout out to my son, Caleb, who's got a cold at home today, who loves Hickory Dickory Dock. He's obsessed. <laughs> and I genuinely mean every ounce of the word obsessed. It's crazy. But John has this, through John chapter 2, I'm not going to go through all of them. There's this hour that Jesus is going toward. It's the hour of his enthronement. This clock is ticking, it's ticking, it's ticking. Jesus, his mother, turn the water into wine. It's not my time yet, woman. He's not being disrespectful. He's just, it's not, it's not time. On and on, it's not time. His brothers in John 7, just go to Jerusalem and show yourself for who you really are if you want a following. It's not 
time yet, it's not time yet, and on and on until John 12, 22 through 23, where Jesus says, now that the world wants to see me, the hour has come. Now that the world wants to see me, how they see me really matters. And so in 23, remember there's two words, and I'm, I'm sticking on these two words. I'm not, I could, there's a lot we could preach about, but I want to just zero in. The hour that he would come to be enthroned was approaching. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you study again the kingdoms of this world, you would probably think that his next move would be what? Going to the palace. Destroy the enemies, right? Which was the great, one of the great Jewish hopes that you would rescue us. Remember all the, the prophetic songs that those first, time, first um, Mary and Zechariah and uh, um, Elizabeth, these, these songs, they were pregnant with hope of being rescued from their enemies. And to almost all of their minds, it was through... But Jesus knew there was a greater enemy and coercion and force couldn't get at the enemy and it was the enemy of sin. And so now is the time, Father, John 12, 23, for the Son to be glorified and contrary to every other kingdom and every other ruler, which, by the way, have all risen and fallen, this king knows that the hour of his glorification is unprecedented in human history. Verse 24 if the donkey was weird, verse 24 is weirder. What does he say? I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce many seeds. So he's riding on a donkey. But when the world wants to see him, he doesn't just keep riding on a donkey. His trajectory just keeps going lower. So low that he would articulate his kingly messianic vocation to be a seed that would fall and die. And he goes on to say, Father, Around verse 27 through 33, should I say, save me from this hour? There it is again, this aura, this important for John. What does he say? He, don't you love when Jesus answers his own prayers in real time? No. No. It's for this very reason. I've come. Father, glorify your name. Your son may glorify you. The crowd thinks it thunders, but Jesus, no, it's just his father once again speaking over him. I have glorified you. You're my eternal son. You and I have been one from before creation, but you're about as my word made flesh boy. 
to rise to your enthronement, but everyone is going to miss it. But once you do it, it'll be the most irresistible pull to the human heart. When you come into your kingdom through your suffering, unprecedented. No, for this reason I've come. The Father thunders, I have glorified it. And don't worry, boy, I will glorify it again. And then Jesus gives that unbelievable verse that so many of us quote, but we've got to understand the context. For I, when I am lifted up, that's, that's king language, church. When I come to my throne, when I establish my throne my way, not like the kingdoms of this world, when I come into my kingdom, I will draw all people to myself. When I do it my way, not your way, my way, in my Father's way, I'm going to draw all people. And in case we were confused by what Jesus meant in verse 33, he tells us flat out, I'm thankful for verses like this, where you don't have to guess or go to a commentary. He said this to what? To show the kind of death he was going to die. So hold on. Isaiah 9, here's the established and upheld. That was the two words. The Lord went, search those two words out, puppy, buddy. You didn't call me puppy. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I know why, because my kids have been loving the secret life of pets. That's why I said puppy. <sighs> he said this to show the kind of death he would die. And so here we see seed of David instead of holding on to his rightful seed which he could have instead of gaining his throne through power and coercion he surrenders to the call of his father to let his seed fall to the ground If you fast forward to the next chapter, chapter 13, after Judas, after Satan enters Judas, by the way, after Jesus already shared the meal with him, that we're going to take in a minute, Jesus told his disciples, he says, guys, the hour I just talked about a chapter earlier, it's getting closer. Now is the time. Now is the time. The hour's coming. The time for what? You got to go back to chapter 12. When the prince of this world will be driven out. I thought that would make people happier than that. <laughs> the prince of this world, he's called the Satan, which means the accuser, who is only empowered when people come into agreement with his ways. And by the way, if since Satan is not omniscient, he doesn't know everything, it says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the rulers of this world probably wouldn't have killed Jesus if they knew what it meant. They wouldn't have... 
just read it. It's in there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when they conspired against this one who was the king, the rightful king, in the most dramatic moment of irony when Jesus is before the high priests and the high priests who hand Jesus over out of self-interest, they say, we have no king but Caesar. You have to hear the tragedy of those words. How Pilate, he didn't know it. He was a prophet and didn't know it. But what he wrote over the inscription of the crucified king was true. The king. In chapter 15, Jesus says the same exact thing. I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 29 through 31, he says... I'm going to drive the prince of this world out, but don't worry, he doesn't have a hold of me. I am the only human in history who has never come into agreement with his ways. The only human in history. That's why, that's the language there, why he has no hold of me. There was no place. You know, I've been thinking about, it's a different devotional thought, so I'll get off of it very quickly. But the holiest place on the earth was the heart of Jesus when he walked the world. Sorry, I get emotional thinking about that. There is no place in Jesus that the enemy could get a hold of. <laughs> the heart of Jesus. Hurry up. High priestly prayer, John 17. Jesus, I brought you, Father, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I would propose... I've done the best that I could just through John's gospel. There's every other gospel and every other Paul. I mean, there's so many verses, but I'm trying to learn to not give you so many. Beloved, the Davidic king that Isaiah prophesied established his throne. He was enthroned at the moment of shame, at the moment of the cross. That this king, unlike any other king, would come into his glory through death. In fact, the language there, you, I mean, it is as, as, it's as clear as can be. When I'm lifted up. And this is why later in Isaiah, remember his insight just increased throughout the book. He prophesies in Isaiah 52, see, My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up. And then he goes on before it's even invented. And his form will be marred beyond human likeness. When, when he's when the servant king is lifted up. And when his form no longer really bears the likeness of a human because of 
crucifixion. And Isaiah, 700 years earlier, tells us that when this servant, son, king, who is, by the way, also a lamb, is there slain on the cross, that this is when the kings of the earth will shut their mouths because they never would have saw it coming. Isaiah 52, many will shut their mouths because of him. For what they have not seen, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will be told. Who has believed our message? Isaiah 53, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 52.10, to the nations. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He's a king who rides a donkey. But, beloved, don't be... Detoured. He may not have been impressive on the outside, but there's never been one who's been like him on the inside. Beating, burning, burning with zeal for his father, zeal for a world that had gone astray. And he was raised up, Isaiah tells us, and he bore our iniquities. And at the moment of his most heinous Shame hanging there, Isaiah. I'm sorry, Psalm, uh, I think 20, 22. That great messianic psalm when his joints are all out of whack and his, like, his, like, he's like wax and his boy, he's just hanging there, bloody and bludgeoned. This is the moment when the Davidic king comes into his throne. That's how his kingdom's established. Yeah. And by the way, he didn't accidentally end up on that wooden stake. John 10 tells us, no one takes it from me, buddy. I lay it down. And so the son who is the servant, who is the king from David's lineage is also John 1.29, the lamb of God who will be slain and take away the sin of the world. The problem that has marred and marked every single kingdom that has risen and fallen The thing that has caused humanity since Genesis 11 to try to build civilizations and cities and cultures without God, the thing that has continued to drive humanity farther and farther into death and decay and darkness, God in Christ at his moment of enthronement finally and fully pays for it all. And so here is the son, the servant, the king, the seed, the promised Messiah, the anointed ruler, the one in whom there was nothing vile or impure or unholy, the only one that lived perfect righteousness and holiness and justice. Here he is hanging and in three languages so that no one would be confused. It was a prophetic act on Pilate's part. The king of the universe Hang slain. And as he breathes his final breath in John 19:30, he cries out, Tetelestai, it is finished. All of the other kingdoms are but puppets and shadows for my bidding. The true and lasting Davidic kingdom has forever been established, not just somewhere far away in a fairy tale land, but right here in Santa Maria, right here in America. Right here on the earth, the moment of his enthronement was the moment of his most, uh, no one saw it coming, but it's when the sun is glorified. 
And when his body is torn, beloved, I studied it this week in one of my devotions. I just got all happy on the inside. When his body was torn, he opened up a way to every man, woman, boy, and girl to come. The resurrection was simply the validation of what was already true on the cross. The cross. How did he establish his throne, this prophesied Messiah? He established it through the cross. We could go on and on, but I'm doing good on time, so I'm not going to. (laughs) So the obvious question, because the two words that God hit me with were establish and uphold. Did you know establish is sort of past tense, but uphold has a present reality? Is it any wonder, church, Santa Maria Cornerstone, that this Messiah, to everyone who would want to follow him, he says, carry your cross also. It's how my kingdom is currently being upheld. I'm telling you, God, it hit me with it. I would blame him Monday. Establish and, with, establish and uphold. How he established, listen, beloved, therefore, this is why it gets funky, because many of us can admire Jesus' ways, but we don't want our life to look like him. And then we're at awe, especially in, in, in our nation, and these, these, we, we like these things, but beloved, I want you to know the way his kingdom was established is the same way it's upheld today. Are you tracking with me? So Jesus is not just some hero from a different century and a different era. Jesus is the one we are to, by the Spirit, participate in his very life here and now in Santa Maria. How? Do blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. As he is, so are we in this world. As my kingdom was established through the cross, the most powerful force on earth was unleashed. Because now it's in and through the cross, we are freed from our self, shame, and sin. And we are made instruments of what? Righteousness. And I forgot, how is his kingdom established in righteousness and justice? Beloved, the cross was not just how it's established, but as you and I carry our cross today, his kingdom continues to increase on the earth. Through self-emptying, sacrificial love. And what is the king pronouncing? This has just killed me. It's a whole other sermon. Maybe I should save it for next week. No, I'm going to close with this. I love it. I, didn't, I love all of it. There's so much. Maybe I'll email the whole, I can give you a PDF. It's like, I can email it to you. Or post it somewhere. I'll post it online. Seriously. You can, by the way, shameless plug, you can listen to all of our messages and then all the notes that I write I upload them onto the website. You can download them and see what you want. But what's so stunning is this king is coming in to his glory on the cross. The only one in whom there was no wrong had every right from the, from the cross to lob accusation against everyone who got it wrong. Are you tracking with me? He had every right to. But how many know there's something more powerful than standing up even for what is rightfully yours, and it's called obedience? And he cries out from the cross, the king's pronouncement over the world. This just crushed me. Father, 
Because usually when presidents or kings get into office, they have sort of a grace period. They can enact some things. You got to see that. This is so stunning. But when this king is enthroned on the cross, he isn't thinking about himself. He's the best. I'm sorry. I love Jesus. That's why I cry a lot. Unlike any other human king or ruler, when he comes into his glory, his first move isn't to pad his success. It's to make a way for everyone else in the world to become as he is. Woo! The king, in his edict, he pronounces it over the world. Father, forgive them. Don't give them what they deserve. If we did that, they would have been wiped out a long time ago. And this is why in Psalm 130, verse 3 through 4, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. And the king, when he comes into his glory, this seed, and there's so many prophecies fulfilled at this moment. I've done the best in the short amount of time that I tried to shoot for. The king's first announcement (laughs) is pardon for you and me. Are you kidding me? That's the coolest. Is it any wonder? I'm serious. You can't make this stuff up. I'm telling you, I say it almost every week, and I'm a broken record. I'm sorry. This is why Jesus, when he is seen for who he is in and through our lives as we carry our crosses, and we, like the king, pronounce forgiveness, and we don't hold bitterness. I'm telling you, forgiveness is the most stunning force on the earth. Right, sir. It is, as I've reflected. Maybe You know what? We'll t- maybe we'll talk about it next week. There's so much more that needs to be said about forgiveness. But when the king is enthroned... And how come he was able to do that? Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Because as he hung there, the punishment for the peace that humanity has elusively tried to grab and grasp can finally become a reality in and through Jesus. Jesus. 